0: Again, uh, my name is Justin Leach, and I'm one of the pastors here at Center Church. If you're new with us, just want to introduce myself. Um, One thing I want to let you know that's been really exciting for us and encouraging to us as we've been uh, living together and uh, doing life as a church is just a couple weeks ago, we had the privilege of baptizing nine people on Sunday morning, which is a huge (laughs) celebration. An awesome picture of lives changed by the gospel and people taking that step of faith and outwardly declaring what has happened in their heart by faith. Uh, We hoped actually that every person who was baptized would get to share a testimony of how the Lord saved them and why they were getting baptized, but because nine people were baptized, we weren't able to make that happen. Um, so I wanted to share with you the story of one of them uh, this morning. There's a, there's a woman named Kimmy. Uh, many of you know her, and she uh, has come to Christ in the past few months and was baptized a couple of weeks ago. I just wanted to share her story with you as an encouragement to you about what God is doing in our church. So Kimmy grew up with a deep respect for God, uh, but not necessarily knowing the gospel. She knew that God existed far out there, but couldn't quite comprehend and understand how God could come close to her in her brokenness, in her pain, and her sin, and in her suffering. About a year ago, there's a guy uh, who came to Christ in our church and was baptized back then, and he actually invited Kimmy shortly after he came to faith, Kimmy and her husband, to come to Center Church to check it out. So she comes one time, unsure of what to expect on this invitation from someone who had just had their life changed by Jesus, and she was loved and cared for and welcomed by the church family. She heard the gospel preached. She was uh, encountered this uh, real, authentic worship of God as we sing songs together and noticed something that was a little bit different about the way people here are engaging with God and how she has been engaging with God throughout her whole life. Through attending church and getting connected, Kimmy met another young lady in our church named Stacy, and Stacy took the initiative to reach out to Kimmy to set up a meeting where she would hopefully get to share the gospel. This is what we call a gospel appointment. So Stacy met up with Kimmy, she uh, sat down with her, heard her story, loved her, cared for her, developed a friendship, and also shared in a one-on-one context this hope of the message of the gospel. That first time, Kimmy uh, didn't pray to receive Jesus. It wasn't just, you know, spectacular and awesome. But from there, she did continue to read the Bible with Stacy, and they met up regularly, developing more and more of a relationship as Kimmy is investigating this message of the gospel. Could it be true? that God loves me, a sinner, and sent his son to die for me. And then after a few months of that, uh, Stacy was describing it to me on the phone yesterday. She said, for a while, she'd been asking Kimmy, what's keeping you from following Jesus? What it, when are you ready to take this step? And one day, Kimmy showed up and said, I did it. I'm a Christian. I believed in Jesus. Thank you for loving me and caring for me. And Kimmy, she sent me her story in an email this week, and she just closed it with saying, I just thank God for what he has done for me because my life has been completely changed. Right, what we like to say around here at Center Church is that every disciple makes disciples, and that's what I love about this story. From the man inviting her to church a year ago, to the church welcoming and creating a, a hospitable place where she can get connected, to Stacy taking the intentional step of following up, sharing the gospel, and reading the Bible with her. Every disciple makes disciples, and that's how lives are changed by the gospel. That's just one of the nine stories of people who were baptized a couple weeks ago and of what God is doing here at Center Church. I just wanted to share that with you. Hopefully that is an encouragement to you, uh, either if you are seeking God or if you are pursuing others and attempting to share the gospel with them, there is hope as we proclaim the gospel. So that's just an encouraging story for you. This story that we're going to read today, um, well, the story that I just shared with you, actually perfectly illustrates the theme of our current sermon series that we are stepping into. All right, last week, we started a new sermon series. We're hopping back into the book of Acts, and we're calling this sermon series Acts Volume 2 because we were in Acts in the fall. Acts Volume 2, People Like You Empowered by Him. During the first five uh, book chapters in the book of Acts, which we were walking through in the fall, we got to see these famous Christians. These apostles that were empowered by Jesus, that were with him for years during his ministry, do some incredible things in Jerusalem. But what we're going to see in Acts volume 2 and chapters 6, 7, and 8 is that also non-apostles are going to begin carrying on the work of the ministry. This is good news for us today because if we want to make an impact as Christians, if we want to make an impact as followers of Jesus, there is hope for us too. People like you and me, non-apostles, are empowered by God to make a difference in the church. All right, this morning we come to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. That's where we're going to be, so if you've got your Bible, you can turn there now. And if you don't have a Bible, at our resource center just outside, we have Bibles for free. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one on your way out, read it, bring it to church, and read along with us, but you can turn to Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. I've heard the church described like a soccer match. All right, like a soccer match. How so? In a soccer match, professional soccer match, there's 22 players running around in desperate need of rest, while there are 50,000 people sitting around cheering in desperate need of exercise. All right? All right. The 50,000 are cheering their heads off and the 22 are sweating. The 50,000 are paying their money to go to the game and the 22 are working really hard. The 50,000 go home and rest after the game and the 22 get back to training and practice. In the church in Acts, we might expect it to look something like this because there are 12 apostles who walked with Jesus and could be very effective in ministry because of their closeness to him and their unique anointing and position in the church. But, Surprisingly, that wasn't the case. We saw that last week and we'll see it today. God empowers normal people to carry out the work of the church. Unfortunately, though, the church today can tend to be more like that soccer match. 90% of the work being being done by 10% of the people. This, though, is not what Jesus intended when he left the Great Commission for his church. God empowers all of his people people like you and me, to participate in his mission. This isn't what the apostles envisioned when they wrote the New Testament calling every disciple of Jesus to make disciples. Jesus said it like this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus said, if anyone, not just if the apostles, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul would say, follow me, me as i follow christ. Jesus did not just save you to be a fan of his moving, of his movement, sitting on the sideline and cheering. He did not just save you to be an ATM or a checkbook for his moving for his movement, giving payments to fund the ministry, but Jesus called you to make disciples. You are meant to be involved in the ministry of the church on the ground making disciples. The way we talk about it, i mentioned it earlier is this, every disciple makes disciples. A christian I'll say it just bluntly and straight up. A Christian who is not making disciples is at best unhealthy or uninformed or ill-equipped and is at worst a bit deceived about the reality of their relationship with Christ. The Bible is clear that if we are a disciple, we will bear fruit in making disciples I want you to hear, if you are uninformed, if you are ill-equipped, we hope to be a church that will train you up to make disciples and to live a fruitful life. Making disciples is not just for a select few of SEAL Team 6 Christians that are changing the world, but it is something that every single one of us is called to be involved in. Every disciple makes disciples, not just the apostles, but you and me. If you're with us this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus or you are just checking things out, I am so glad that you are here. Uh, I'm glad that you are here because we are going to talk about a specific access or a specific aspect of the Christian life. And we're going to talk about a specific aspect of disciple making that we as Christians don't do the best job of. And is not talked about very often, so you get a front row seat to seeing an important part of the Christian life that we don't have a ton of experience in. So first, what we'll do is we'll walk through Acts chapter six, and then we'll begin to pull out uh, some themes and ideas that we can learn from today. So Acts chapter six, Acts chapter six and seven are about a man named Stephen. All right, Stephen is an impressive and celebrated person here for sure, as we will see in the text. But he is just a normal guy. He's not an apostle. He is just flesh and blood like you and me, though the apostles are as well empowered by Jesus anointed to the special position, but he is deeply engaged in the mission of the church. So about Stephen. So read Acts 6, 8 through 15 with me, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. All right, Stephen stood out because of his godliness. He's the first non-apostle in the book of Acts uh, with wonders and signs attributed to him. Out of the, at, at this point in the church, likely there are about 20,000 people, men, women, in the church at this point in the incredible growth that the church had experienced. So when Stephen is listed in the first half of chapter 6, if you remember from last week, as the first among the seven chosen to solve this problem, he's a pretty sharp guy. He is standing out because of his godliness, and he has chosen to step into positions of church leadership because of how uh, he is reflecting God to the world and the community around him. So Stephen is standing out because of his godliness. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stephen. All right, so who are these people that are rising up and disputing with Stephen? Synagogue of the Freedmen. This is a gathering of Jewish people in Jerusalem, likely made up of people who were ex-slaves in their families, worshiping together according to the tradition that uh, the Jewish people were worshiping at that time. These people, similarly to the previous chapter, were Hellenistic Jews, meaning they spoke Greek and they were shaped culturally, often much more by Greek culture than by Jewish culture. So they were a little bit different. Um, This group, though, is uniquely passionate and zealous, and it might be a little surprising to hear that. It it struck me as odd, but this group is known for being passionate and zealous uh, because they are from a different culture, from a different place, and actually have chosen to move to Jerusalem to be near the holy city. They're known as Zionists. They are passionate about Jewish tradition and law, maybe even more so than people who are shaped in Jewish culture. Being a part of another culture did not make them waver on Judaism, but it made, made them actually turn against outside culture and hold stronger and more tightly to it. So this group that is disputing against Stephen is a very zealous group. Also, Saul, uh, who... Has, becomes Paul and writes much of the New Testament, was likely a part of this synagogue or knew them because he was from uh, Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. So this is a group of people that are very zealous and very antagonistic towards the Christian faith that is bubbling up in Jerusalem. Verse 10, continuing on. But as they were disputing, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen stood out for his godliness but he was opposed for his proclamation. All right, Stephen stood out for his godliness, but he was opposed for his speaking. Through the course of his argument, the opponents realized they could not withstand the gospel that Stephen was preaching. He was showing them, according to the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that they were looking for. They were expecting this Jewish culture, a mighty king that would deliver them from Roman rule, but Jesus came as a suffering servant. And Stephen was showing them how this was the true fulfillment of the Old Testament when they couldn't defeat his argument, when they couldn't uh, defeat that he was showing them truth from Scripture, they turned to slander and then eventually violence. In verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders of the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses." who said this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They set up a sham court with false witnesses. They accused him of blasphemy, which is a capital offense, punishable by death. Ironically here, they set up false witnesses, breaking the very law that they thought they were trying to uphold. And then verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council that was judging him saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Sitting before the ruling council, 70 powerful leaders with the power to take his life against him, looking to silence him, his face shone like an angel. God was with him. Stephen was a normal guy, not an apostle, and God empowered him to proclaim the message of the gospel and to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Church, this is what I want you to hear today too. Just like Stephen, you are empowered by God for evangelism. All right, just like Stephen, you are empowered by God for evangelism. Evangelism, though, is no easy task. In fact, as soon as you saw the title slide come up for this sermon or as soon as I mentioned that word, you might have had a little fear creep up in you with the idea of sharing your faith with those who don't know Jesus. And what I want to say to you is that this passage is a gift from God for us because sharing our faith, practicing evangelism, is part of what it means to be faithful to Jesus. And this gift is a challenge but also an encouragement for us to walk in faithfulness in this area. I'll start off by teaching what biblical evangelism is and then we're going to take a look at a couple of realities of Stephen's experience of proclaiming the gospel and learn what we need to know so that we can be successful in evangelism today. All right, so first, what is evangelism? What is evangelism? I I really tried this week to find a different word besides evangelism to use today because I know of the connotations that it has in culture that are negative and unhelpful and nobody likes it. But I couldn't find a different word because it describes exactly what we're doing. We are sharing the hope of the gospel with others. You may even ask, Justin, why do we have to talk about evangelism in church? Like, Why do we have to talk about this? It is offensive. It is forward. Our culture does not like it. If I talk about evangelism, people frown upon it. Why are we talking about this in church? And I'll tell you this. The reason we need to talk about it is because it's the main event in our passage today. And we bow to the Bible. The Bible does not bow to us. When something hard and challenging confronts us in the Bible, we address it straight on and learn what God has for us in it so that we can walk in it faithfully. Evangelism is exactly what gets Stephen in trouble in this passage, so we need to talk about it together this morning, learn from his example so we can walk in faithfulness as well. Much of the discomfort that you feel in evangelism, though, may come from a lack of understanding. So there are many objections to evangelism, both from Christians and non-Christians in our world today, and most objections to evangelism boil down to this, I think. Ready? This is the objection. It is unloving to force your beliefs on others. All right, we talk about evangelism, the number one objection that I hear is, it is unloving to force your beliefs on others, right? What I would respond to that statement with is, I agree. I think if you force anything on anyone, it's probably unloving, but that isn't what evangelism is. In fact, it's a little bit of a contradiction in terms to force belief. Belief is an inward reality that we, uh, we believe. I don't even, couldn't even come up with different words to say that. And so we can't force someone into that. We could force someone to align with uh, behaviors that we want them to align with, but we could never force someone to believe. In fact, the Bible gives us the basis for the idea of the Western, in the Western culture of religious freedom right? Belief that is compelled from an outside force is not genuine belief in any way that the Bible talks about it, right? Belief that is saving, that is trusting in Christ comes from the heart and is a response of worship and of thanks, not something compelled from the outside. So when someone says it's unloving to force your beliefs on others, I would say I agree 100%, but that's not what evangelism is. What then is evangelism? And here's a definition for you. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel with the aim to persuade. All right, evangelism is proclaiming the gospel with the aim to persuade. Let's break it down. Proclaim. All right, there's a quote, falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assis. You may have heard this before. Uh, People say that he said, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. The heart behind this is, is great. Our lives should embody the gospel that we believe, and we should display the love of Jesus in our actions. The problem is the gospel is a message, and it cannot just be displayed. It has to be proclaimed. We'll see in Stephen's life that he did display, he did live out the implications of the gospel faithfully as a godly person. But that in itself is not evangelism. All right? salvation comes through hearing the word of Christ, the message of the hope of the gospel and believing. Proclaiming is necessary in biblical evangelism. A quick note to encourage you along the lines of proclaiming. Successful evangelism for you, church, is proclaiming, not converting. Our role is to proclaim the message of hope. That's what biblical evangelism is. We can't convert people, but we can proclaim. We can, pl- we can proclaim Christ. We can proclaim the gospel. So we proclaim. And then it's proclaiming the gospel. All right, gospel. It's a word in Greek, euangelion. That means good news. Alright, it means good news. It is not a task list, it is not a system of morality, but an announcement that should bring gladness. One way to understand the message of the gospel is this, and if you're checking out Christianity today uh, and you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, this gospel message that I'm about to unpack real quick is the core of what we believe as Christians and what we treasure. So this is the gospel that we proclaim. Break it down into three parts. First, the bad news of sin. Alright, the gospel starts with the bad news of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, we deserve an eternity in hell apart from him as righteous punishment for our sin. That's the bad news of sin. But there is the good news of Jesus. God loved us and sent his son Jesus, the God-man, to pay the debt of our sin, accrued by our sin, by dying on the cross. And then he defeated the power of sin and death by rising to new life. Three days later. The bad news of sin, the good news of what Jesus has done. And then the last thing is the necessity of response. Those who respond to Christ in trust, in faith, in repentance, have new life. Are adopted into God's family, receive the Holy Spirit, and gain an eternal inheritance. The gospel can be summed up just like this. The bad news of sin, the good news of Jesus, and the necessity of our response of faith. This gospel, this message of good news, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is a message of good news, of hope, of what Christ has done. We proclaim the gospel with the aim to persuade. We proclaim the gospel with the aim to persuade. This part may turn people off, but I don't think it should. Because we aim to persuade people in different things at different times. And if we believe this is true, then we hope people believe it. For sure, there are unhealthy, rude, and unkind ways to go about sharing the gospel, to go about doing evangelism and aiming to persuade. But if we believe that this message of the gospel is true and it is the way to be reconciled to God, we ought to be sharp and prepared and ready to, ready to paint a beautiful picture of what Christ has done and call people to the life that the gospel brings for us. We aim to per- persuade. We ought to love people regardless of what they believe about Christ. But we also ought to call them to trust in him. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel with the aim to persuade. And this is exactly what gets Stephen in trouble in this passage. Right? While he is doing signs and wonders, he's healing people, and he's kind to everyone, no one is too upset with him. But when he starts declaring Jesus Christ is the Messiah, then he gets into some trouble. When he proclaims the message of the gospel powerfully with the aim to persuade, the religious leaders of the day become enraged. That's what gets him in trouble here, is proclaiming the gospel with the aim to persuade. As followers of Jesus, though, why should we evangelize? Two reasons I want to give you real quick. Evangelism is an expression of faithfulness to Jesus. We talked about it real quick at the beginning, but every disciple is called to make disciples. In the Great Commission, Jesus called every believer to evangelize. Often we think of this making disciples as helping people grow in their faith, but the starting point of making disciples is leading someone to trust in Jesus and seeing them baptized. The first job of the Great Commission that Jesus left us is evangelism, is sharing our faith. And faithfulness to Jesus for every single one of us requires us sharing our faith as we have opportunities to do so. Evangelism is an expression of faithfulness to Jesus, but it's also an expression of love for others. The Bible is clear that we should do all things out of love for God and our neighbor. And sharing the gospel, walking in evangelism is no different. Coronavirus, right? If we had the antidote to the coronavirus and we could cause the mayhem to stop of death and sickness, as well as stock market craziness and trips getting canceled, and we kept it to ourselves. that is the opposite of love, right? If we have the antidote to this disease and we hold it to ourselves, that is not respecting someone else's uh, beliefs. That is, that is selfishness. I don't, I don't even know what that is. We would never do that. What we have in the gospel is an opportunity to love others by declaring to them the antidote for sin, which is Jesus Christ on the cross. One missionary says it like this. uh, It's not an outward, uh, arrogant, uh, overbearing proclamation of Jesus aligning with our view of life, but evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where they found the bread. Evangelism is simply one beggar, needy person, in need of God's grace, telling another beggar where they found bread. Evangelism is an expression of love, for others evangelism proclaiming the gospel with the aim to persuade this is our call out of faithfulness to Jesus and love for others and all of us are called to this work okay we have a biblical understanding of evangelism now we'll take a look at Stephen's experience and understand two realities that we need to be aware of as we step into evangelism if we're going to walk this out faithfully and I'll give you the two up front evangelism requires godliness and evangelism invites opposition, all right? Evangelism requires godliness, and evangelism invites opposition. So first, evangelism requires godliness. You need to know this, church, if you're going to walk out in faithful and powerful evangelism. First, just take a look at Stephen's godliness. Stephen faces intense opposition for the evangelism here, and we'll get to talking about that, but look at the way that he is described throughout this chapter, or verse six, chapter six, verse three, he has good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Six five, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, full of grace and power. He was doing great signs and wonders. Ten, he spoke with wisdom and the spirit. And verse fifteen, his face was shining like an angel. I mean, this was a godly man. Stephen was both inwardly godly and outwardly distinct. He was inwardly godly. His character had been shaped by the message of the gospel. He was full of grace and truth. Uh, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Stephen is inwardly godly as he is shaped by this gospel that he believed, and the passage could not describe him more clearly in this respect. But Stephen is also outwardly distinct. He was noticeably different than those around him, right? He stood out in this list. They're bringing him uh, up to serve in different ways. He performed signs and wonders. And then maybe the most obvious way is very different is his face shined like an angel in front of a council. Right? He's just different than the people around him because of his godliness. Stephen's godliness was absolutely necessary for his evangelism. And godliness is necessary if your evangelism is going to be fruitful and effective too. And godly character is necessary for at least two reasons. A, godliness authenticates the message. All right? Your godliness authenticates the message. If you proclaim a message that Jesus is Lord, that you trust him over everything else, and then don't live in line with it, it guts the message of the gospel. It just guts the message of the gospel and its power. A distinct life authenticates a demanding message. All right, similarly, a worldly life undermines the message of the gospel. This makes sense, right? If the CEO of a company, the CEO of a company is talking a big game and is really excited about everything that is going on in the company and they're telling people to buy stock and their company is moving up and up, but then on the side he's cashing out his stock, selling it for cash, you're going to be really concerned, right? He's saying, hey, pump up the stock price while well, I sell mine out so I can make some cash. Actually, this happened, right? We work. Uh, This company blew up $20 billion valuation and as the CEO was selling off his stock to make some cash on the side and shortly after, it crashed. It was nothing, right? What he is doing is proclaiming a message outwardly but directly contradicting the message by the actions that he is taking, right? If we had known what he was doing, we would not have followed his advice. In the same way, if you proclaim the message of the gospel but live out of step with the gospel, it completely guts the message that you seek to proclaim, right? If we say, I believe that I am a sinner saved by grace, I believe that, and then we live in pride and in arrogance toward others, people won't listen. They'll say, you say that you're a sinner saved by grace, but you act as if you're better than everybody else. You don't actually believe that. It guts the power of your message. If we say, I believe Jesus is coming back for me, he's coming back for his people, and then I live in worry, and fear, and nervousness, and complaining, people aren't going to listen. If I say I believe that God has made me righteous in Christ, and then I live according to the standards of morality of the world, people are going to say, you don't, you don't believe that. If I believe that Christ has taken care of all my needs at the cross, but then I'm stingy and not generous, it guts the message of the gospel. A distinct life authenticates a demanding message and a worldly life undermines it and, gut, and guts it. Godliness authenticates the message. Godliness is necessary for evangelism. Another way that godliness is necessary is that godliness sustains you in difficulty. All right, godliness will sustain you in difficulty when you start walking in evangelism and you face opposition. I mean, we see that in Stephen's life here. It doesn't only authenticate it, but it will also sustain it. What gave Stephen the ability to stand firm in the midst of the opposition he faced? It was a trust in Christ. He was described as full of faith and full of the Spirit multiple times in this chapter. Stephen trusted the gospel, and he bet his life on the truth of it. That is what faith is, putting all of your eggs in one basket and holding and making no hedges or other bets to cut your losses. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would give words for us to proclaim as we evangelize, right? In Luke 12, uh, 11 and 12, this is what Jesus says, and it's pretty incredible looking at this story. It's this story, this is what he says. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, right, right where Stephen is right now, when they bring you there, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Right? Stephen was with God. He had a godly character and that sustained him. He was full of the Holy Spirit. So as he was put into opposition because of evangelism, he was ready to proclaim the message of the gospel that God spoke through him by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that as we fulfill the Great Commission and as we face opposition, he will never leave us or forsake us. He told us to expect opposition. If they treated him that way by killing him and putting him on a cross, he said, how much more will they do the same to you? He said, expect opposition. Expect it. Uh, but that he would never leave us or forsake us. Remembering those truths, walking in faith, remembering the gospel, pursuing godliness, trusting those promises gives you power to sustain in the midst of opposition. Godliness sustains you in difficulty. It is necessary for evangelism. What does this mean for you? All right, what does this mean for you that godliness is necessary for evangelism? To be effective in evangelism, you must pursue godliness. This means you don't need to be perfect. All right, don't hear that with what I'm saying today. You do not need to be perfect. You are never going to get to the place where you can say, look at how awesome I am, and that's why you should be a Christian. And I don't sin, so you can look at me as the perfect example. That's not what I'm saying here. You'll never be perfect this side of eternity, and you share Christ even in your imperfection, magnifying his grace. So, so what I'm not saying is that you need to be perfect, but what I am saying is that you do need to be changed by Jesus. Your life does need to be different and distinct. And when you proclaim the message of the gospel, if you are living in a way that constantly undermines what you believe, you won't have the power and the, um, the trust to proclaim a gospel that people will believe when you speak it. Do you right now live a life that embodies the message of the gospel? Maybe a better way to ask that would be, do you live a life right now that is imperfect but slowly growing more and more day by day to embody the message of the gospel? Generosity. Are you quick to serve others? at great cost to yourself, right? Do you embody the message of the gospel? Grace, are you patient? All right, are you patient and forgiving with that one coworker that everyone knows is difficult, right? Are you patient with them, showing them the grace that has been shown to you? These traits of a life changed by the gospel are necessary if our evangelism is gonna have effectiveness and power. Evangelism requires godliness, If right now you think that you are not embodying the gospel and you are undermining the gospel in some ways uh, by how you live, uh, there is hope. You can grow in godliness. And the way to do that more than anything else is consistently be with Jesus. Just consistently be with Jesus and you will grow in godliness. The more you are with him, the more he's going to rub off on you. All right, Evangelism requires godliness and godliness comes from being with Jesus. So every morning, spend time with him and like Moses when he met with God and like Stephen when he met with God, your face will shine and you will be distinct and that distinct life will authenticate the message and your godliness will sustain you when you face opposition. All right, godliness is necessary if you are going to live an effective life in evangelism. Evangelism requires godliness. Without it, you won't have the courage to evangelize and you won't have the power to speak. I have found, though, that many people expect evangelism to go something like this: If I do all the right things and I s- explain every contradiction or not contra- every objection in the right way, uh, and I do it, you know, kindly and with uh, seasoned with salt, as the Bible would say, then I will never face any opposition, right? If I can just say the right words, I won't face opposition. But that could not be further from the truth. The second reality that we see in Stephen's life is that evangelism invites opposition. All right, evangelism invites opposition, and you need to know this if you are going to live a life faithful in this area because it will be easy when you face opposition just to back out. But if you expect it and know that it's coming, you'll be prepared to handle it. So what kind of uh, opposition does Stephen face for his evangelism? All right, it starts with simple disputing, then he gets put on trial, and eventually next week we are gonna see that he is killed for proclaiming the message of the gospel. Stephen faced opposition Because he proclaimed a gospel that utterly devastated Jerusalem's worldview. All right, Stephen faced opposition because he proclaimed a gospel that utterly devastated Jerusalem's worldview. How did the gospel devastate Jerusalem's worldview? Well, we see. As we see in the false accusations that the Jews levied against Stephen, the temple and the law of Moses were very important to them. When they sought to get the people the most riled up, that's the accusations that they brought, right? He's speaking blasphemous words against Moses, against God, and against the temple, against the law. They are very passionate about these areas. For hundreds of years, Jewish religious, relational, community, cultural life were centered around one idea, works-based righteousness. The temple and the law of Moses were the center of this idea, how they worked this righteousness out and earned a self-righteousness before God. And these Jewish people thought that they were doing a really good job. Uh, Jesus came and spoke against this. One example is Luke 18. I'll read a parable that Jesus taught real quick. Luke 18:9 through 14. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went in a temple to pray, one the Pharisee, and another a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like those other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Pride, arrogance. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is what Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In that parable, Jesus is telling the religious and the powerful of the day, you have missed the point of the law. You cannot justify yourself by it. Your self-righteousness and your works-based righteousness will never cut it. God doesn't give you the law so you can prove your worth to him. And if you are basing your worth on that before him, it will utterly fail because we can never be perfect enough. The gospel, it challenged the power of the religious leaders. Right? If the gospel is true and Jesus is raised, there is no need for priests. Every one of God's people has access to God through Christ. The economy of Jerusalem is brought to its knees. There's no need to buy sacrifices. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice once and for all. The traditions and customs of the culture are torn down in the gospel, and their fundamental understanding of how God relates to the world is destroyed. No longer self-righteousness, but gift righteousness from Christ. The gospel utterly devastated Jerusalem's worldview. It brought everything down dominated their most deeply held beliefs, the structure of their lives and their economy, and they responded with rage. The gospel message that Stephen preached ripped the rug out from under Jerusalem, and they responded with violence. He faced opposition because he preached a gospel that utterly devastated Jerusalem's worldview. The reality is that as we proclaim the gospel, the gospel utterly devastates the American worldview too. So no matter how clearly you speak, no no matter how gracious and loving you are, you will face opposition as you share the message of the gospel. The fundamental worldview in American culture today is expressive individualism. Some of its slogans include, you do you, be true to yourself, follow your heart. All right, one pastor, a theologian, author defines it like this. The purpose, this is expressive individualism, the purpose of life is to find one's deepest self and then express that to the world, forging that identity in ways that counter whatever family, friends, political affiliations, previous generations, or religious authorities might say. We see this fundamental worldview play out all over culture in so many different ways, but one area that we see this is in divorce. Our right, Divorce is just an explosion, the explosion in divorce is an expression of this expressive individualism in our culture. 42 to 45% of marriages today end in divorce. Let that number sink in. Just about one in every two marriages end in divorce. And there are legitimate reasons for divorce, safety from abuse and sexual immorality for sure. But the vast majority of these divorces are just irreconcilable differences i no longer feel fulfilled in my marriage i need to be true to myself follow my heart leave my spouse and find happiness right when you preach the gospel the gospel utterly devastates this worldview and no matter how kind and gracious you are at times you will face opposition foundational to the message of the gospel is this we are sinners corrupt and twisted our hearts are deceitful and expressing our feelings and desires unchecked will lead to destruction. Life is not found in expressing our desires, but life is found in having our desires transformed by Christ and in him finding and experiencing abundant life. Even if you do all of the right things, say it in the right way, are full of grace and truth, when you proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is going to pull the rug out from under expressive individualism. We don't express ourselves. We submit ourselves to Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And because of that, you will face opposition as you evangelize. Some people will trust Christ, but many will oppose you. Many may laugh in your face. Some may call you a bigot. Some might not even give you the time of day because the gospel is going to confront the culture of the day. The reality that we learn from Stephen is that evangelism invites opposition. And this is as true today as it was then. If we are going to be faithful to walk in opposition, we need to be, walk in evangelism, we need to be prepared to face opposition. So what have we learned today so far? First, biblical evangelism is proclaiming the gospel with the aim to persuade. That's what we're all called to. Every one of us is called to participate in that. One reality that we learn from Stephen's life is that evangelism requires godliness. And the second is that faithful evangelism invites opposition. Now, there are two groups of people I need to speak to as we close out today. Some of you here today uh, do not have a relationship with Jesus. All right? You do not need to worry at all about going out and sharing the message of the gospel this week and starting to walk in evangelism. You need to trust in Christ for yourself. I have one question for you this morning. One question I want you to wrestle with. I would love for you to come tell me your answer. If you're here considering Jesus today, I want to hear from you. What is keeping you from repenting from your sin and trusting in Jesus today? What stands in the way? What objections, what questions, what concerns, what unbelief? What stands in the way from you trusting in Christ right now? Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. The sin debt that you have accrued by rejecting him and stiff-arming him, he went to the cross for you. Jesus has done everything necessary for your salvation. All you need to do is trust in Christ. We are so glad that you are here learning about Jesus and the hope of Christ, but what is keeping you from following him? I, or the person that brought you here, would love to chat with you after the service and just hear where you're at. Explain more of what we believe and why we believe it as we proclaim the message of hope to you and then see what God does in your life. Others of us are walking as followers of Jesus already. My challenge to you today, and the challenge from Scripture, is this take a step to share the gospel. All right, take a step to share the gospel. Here are a couple of ways that you can take a step toward walking in evangelism and obeying this call of Christ on our lives. One, invite a friend to church and then chat about it after. Alright, this is one way that you can take a step in evangelism. Invite a friend to church and talk about it after. This is a great step to take in evangelism. I hope that eventually you can grow and be able to share the gospel, you know, in a coffee shop, and there's different ways to do that as you grow in confidence and being able to speak with clarity, but a great way to share the gospel is to invite someone to church. Josh and I try to preach the gospel in a way that's clear every time, so if you want somebody to hear the message of the gospel, bring them, and we will hopefully get it to them faithfully. That's one step you can take. Another step that you you can take, especially if you're in a discipleship group here at Center Church, is you can start an evangelistic Bible study together. We have a great resource at our resource center called One-to-One Bible Reading, and it'll walk through really practically how to start reading the Bible with all sorts of people and non-Christians included. One thing that you can do as a D group is pair up or start praying that you would be able to start an evangelistic Bible study in your neighborhood, in your dorm room, in your office, and seek to have people just like Kimmy and Stacy. Encountering the word of God week by week in relationship together. Just a couple steps that you can take. Knowing these realities about evangelism, though, that we saw in Stephen's life and having action steps very clearly doesn't make evangelism easy, though, right? As I mentioned at the beginning, evangelism is terrifying and fearful and probably strikes the fear of God into our hearts more than anything else in the Christian life at times. These are the questions that we need to ask. Is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to share the gospel? Why is the awkwardness of initiating spiritual conversation worth it? Why is the risk of facing opposition worth it? Why was it worth it for Stephen to give up his life because of evangelism? Why? And this is the answer. Because Jesus gave up his life for us. Jesus gave up his life for us. When we were far from him, uninterested in him, Jesus gave himself to the cross. He came to us and he gave his life for the world so that whoever would believe in him can have life. When you had no interest in him, he had interest in you. And now, because of the gospel, Jesus promises never to leave us or forsake us. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we who trust in him will never be forsaken. We go, we share the gospel, we step into discomfort because we trust Christ. And we desire his name to be glorified above everything else. We pray that more and more people would worship him and give him the glory and the honor that he deserves. So we step into awkwardness and discomfort as we trust him. He gave himself for us. So in response, we say, Jesus, I give myself for you. For some of us, like Stephen, that might mean moving across the world to a dangerous area and facing intense opposition. For others of us, that might mean stepping across the hall, crossing a couple of social boundaries that are a little bit uncomfortable and telling people we love you and this might be uncomfortable, but I need to share with you this hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In thankfulness in a desire for his name to be glorified in a hope for many people to find salvation in him, we lay our preferences down to proclaim the message of the gospel and bring glory to his name. We proclaim the gospel with the aim to persuade because Jesus has saved us. As the song we are about to sing says, Though some should curse me for your name, I have no fear. I have no shame. You stand with me for all my days, my ever only Jesus. Church, it is my prayer that we will walk faithfully in evangelism. This is hard. This is challenging. I want to equip and to serve and encourage you. Jesus calls us to this work, and we have a chance to impact people in Charlottesville with the message of the hope of the gospel. I'll pray. Father, I pray to you, asking that you would fill us with courage and with faith like Stephen to proclaim your word even in the midst of opposition. I pray that we would not just follow you when it is easy, but we would say yes to you even when we are called to do something challenging like share the gospel with people who are not looking for it. God, we thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that we are your children. I pray for our church that we would be so captivated by your love and your grace and your mercy toward us, that you would be so precious that the things that we hold on to in this world that keep us from sharing our faith with others would fall away. God, make our faces shine like Stephen. Let our mouths sing of your gospel like Stephen and give us opportunity to share the gospel, to see people come and know you, and to see a movement of disciple-making disciples happen at UVA in Charlottesville. Father, we pray that you would bring this to pass using us, using other churches here, using your people. In Jesus' name I pray.